Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. The Law Landlords, is Big Brother regulating you? I think so. Federal, state, and local governments are increasingly regulating every area of life. Increased government regulation has recently resulted in a seismic shift to limit the rights and remedies of residential landlords in California. Some of this results from statewide rental shortages, some from the need to protect vulnerable groups, and some from just plain social engineering. When is the state overreaching? And when's it acting legitimately to balance the rights between landlords and tenants? Today in our legal segment, I'll examine some of these issues and recent legislation requiring that landlords in California rent to Section 8 tenants. Then I'll interview John Siegel, a longtime landlord counsel to get his take on these trends and other challenges facing consumer and commercial landlords in California. Finally, in our Where is the Lug segment, I'll examine some of the most ridiculous regulations in California to determine if we're making social progress or losing our collective minds and our liberty in the face of relentless government regulation. Landlords in California have been heavily regulated over the years. The primary thrust of these regulations has been to level the economic playing field. Take rent and eviction control as primary examples. Declaring housing shortage emergencies the cities of Los Angeles, Santa Monica, San Francisco, and Oakland, and others have had long-standing eviction and rent control ordinances. More recently, even in what you might call relatively conservative jurisdictions such as Santa Rosa, Sacramento, or Marin County, they've implemented some sort of rental control as housing shortages or natural disasters like the fires causing housing shortages cause rents to skyrocket. In 2020, the state of California implemented statewide rent control on covered units. California's statewide rent control applies to any rent increase that goes into effect after March 15, 2019. The new law caps rent increases statewide for qualifying units at either 5% plus the increase in the regional CPI or Consumer Price Index or 10% of the lowest rent charged at any time during the 12 months prior to the increase. Whichever is less. I think clearly these rent and eviction control ordinances were enacted primarily to address real and perceived rental shortages in the state of California and also to limit the rights of landlords to price tenants out of the market during times of economic stress. But the COVID 19 pandemic took things to a new level. It resulted in, in eviction emergency moratoriums, suspension of landlord rights. However, a recently enacted new law in 2021 shows that the California legislature is not content to just regulate economic issues. They now have an eye on ensuring that social agendas also play a part 
in the traditional landlord-tenant relationship. I want to focus on government code 12955 because while everyone else was focused on the pandemic, the legislature also put through an important change to California statutes that uh, prohibit landlord discrimination in, in rental housing. It went into effect in 2021 under SB 329, which codified government code section 12955, which holds that a landlord's refusal to consider rental applicants receiving Section 8 subsidies constitutes illegal discrimination. So the law was changed, in essence, by redefining the definition of a prospective tenant's income. So they now uh, include uh, income as uh, Section 8 housing vouchers, which is deemed the same as income from any other source. A violation of these laws, these new anti-discrimination laws, subjects landlords to the full force and effect of all of California's anti-discrimination provisions, including lawsuits by tenant applicants. Undoubtedly, just as was the case with ADA law, there's enterprising attorneys and, air quotes, testers out there now working together to locate landlords who are unaware of this new law and the requirements and to sue them. No one should unfairly discriminate when selecting a tenant, and there's already protected classes of renters recognized under the law to ensure this. On the other hand, the economic review process of a landlord when selecting a tenant, including credit review, review for stable rental history, review for current employment, these are some of the most critical determinative factors in helping a landlord select a tenant. So previously, some landlords would rightly decide that renting to lower income or disabled tenants who are unable to show stable income or job or rental history carries a greater risk of default and damage to the premises even if they had the financial backstop of the Section 8 program, and the landlords wouldn't participate. Other landlords would tailor their rentals to the Section 8 program, factoring in perceived increased risks to their business models, and they would rent. There's advantages and disadvantages to renting to Section 8 tenants, and previously it was up to the landlord to decide whether to do so. Now, absent narrow exceptions, it's mandatory. Being the diehard, all-things-New England fan that I am, I keep asking myself the question, if I was a landlord in California, would I want to be required to have to rent to Yankees fans? Perhaps not, but in light of the direction of this new legislation, I may have to. Laws and Real Estate all right, I'm here today with John Siegel, and John, I'm going to give a little background so everybody can know who you are. You're an attorney, you've been practicing since 1993, specializing in real estate law. In your practice, you represent developers, residential and commercial landlords, and lenders holding REO properties. You worked for the Shear Law Group for many years until you came to your senses, and now you work with both Shear Law Group and independently. Is that true? That's true. And uh, you graduated from Ohio State, is that correct? No, man. <laughs> I think I'm going to cut this whole thing off. Then. That was a trick question. <laughs> I, I know. It was, uh, Go ahead. Tell everybody for real. Uh, uh, for real? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think people will figure it out. I went to the uh, graduated from the University of Michigan, and then uh, USF Law School. That's why you, your eye started twitching uncontrollably. Uh, I'm, I'm not ready to cancel this whole podcast. <laughs> Uh, you noted on your bio that this is your third real estate recession. Uh, you think this is the worst of them all, or just different? Uh, it's it's different. I would say it, it, it's the most complicated uh, for sure. There's more going on in this one than in the other ones. 
Um, and we guess we'll talk, be talking about that. It's, yep. it's completely, it's incredible as, as an attorney to guide clients through what's happening. It's incredibly challenging, even just to myself keep up to date on all the legislation, the existing legislation, the proposed legislation, federal, state, county, city, residential versus commercial. That's There's pretty no great. end to it. Yeah, I, I would say I've said this before, but I think I, all the other recessions, uh, even the, the Great Recession of 2008, they, they were somewhat uh, structural in nature. I mean, you could fix up the particular problem, oil patch issues, real estate crash, whatever, but this one's systematic. I've never seen anything like it where the government will save us all. But Yeah, there's that too. <laughs> all right, what's the biggest challenge you see facing landlords as a result of the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I, actually, you know, it depends. We talked generically about landlords, but it depends on what kind of landlord you are. You know, if uh, a multifamily landlords got different challenges than, uh, for instance, industrial. Industrial, the market's been great. You know, the, the tenants are all there; they're all paying rent, etc. Retail, you got big problems. Office, big problems as well. So it really depends on you know who you are, and depending on who you are, the economics of this whole catastrophe have been different. The laws that apply to you can be different. So you know it really depends. There's no generic answer for everyone. I'd say basically what landlords need to be doing now, and hopefully have been doing throughout this pandemic, is to consulting with counsel or whoever to figure out you know what their rights and obligations are. Uh, with respect to collecting rents and these, you know, various moratorium. What about lenders? How to handle lenders? Because that's obviously a very important aspect of this. And then just kind of the the general economics of moving forward in whatever sector you're in. Good, very good. Um, it's estimated there'd be over a million evictions nationwide if uh, existing state, local, and federal moratoriums were immediately removed. And I saw an article that said the CFPB, actually, it's, uh, they're proposing extending current moratoriums on residential evictions until January 1 of 2022, not only on the federally backed mortgages, but on all uh, residential mortgages secured by a borrower's residence. Do you think that the eviction moratoriums in California will ever get lifted? I think they'll eventually get lifted, but they're going to be, you know, supposedly, for instance, the residential non-payment moratorium is supposed to end at the end of this month, and you can start evictions beginning August 1st, but they've already sort of extended that date a couple times, and I think they'll, I think there's a good chance they'll, you know, they'll do it again. The commercial has been left to actually the municipalities to decide what they want to do. And as long as the governor's emergency order is in effect, then if they want to keep extending them, they can keep extending them. And one thing that I've had recently with clients is that they're all assuming that because we're reopening essentially on June 15th in California, then that's the end of these emergency orders and everything's going to go back, you know, then and there. And that's not the case at all. The the you know the restrictions on you know uh, that we've had with masking and all that that's been one aspect of the emergency order but just because that goes away doesn't mean the emergency order in its entirety is going to go away yeah let's hit on that for a second because I agree it seems like the, it's a confluence now between economics law and politics so yeah. if I let's say everybody thinks there's inflation some people uh, 
think deflation is the result. But let's say you have no, a big economic downturn. You think the government's going to reintervene in the name of uh, of the pandemic, even though the uh, emergency has passed? I, I think they. I think they could. Particularly to you know protect tenants, I don't think they're going to do it necessarily to protect landlords. Although sometimes that's you know a secondary effect of, of the their intervention. But I, I and I've actually been thinking about this. You know, like for instance, San Francisco is talking about extending the residential. It, it gets sort of complicated, but the residential moratorium that doesn't involve not paying the rent because that's controlled by the state, not paying the rent. And they want to get, they're talking about extending it to September. And part of the rationale, again, you know, oh yeah, we're, we're reopening, but that doesn't mean that on June 15th all the effects of what's happened with COVID are going to go away. So, you know, theoretically, you know, it could be years before all the effects of COVID go away. In, and so they could really just extend it for as long as they want. Whether they'll go that far with it, I don't know, but... I, let's switch topics here to impossibility of performances on commercial leases. So oh. <laughs> some commercial tenants are, are taking the position that they're excused from paying rent because the pandemic made it impossible to perform under a lease, kind of like a a war or a natural disaster scenario. And uh, I noted that there's a San Francisco proposal to allow tenants to uh, use this as a defense in in, uh, landlord-tenant litigation. Discuss some possibility of performance under a lease. Should it apply to rental obligations because of the pandemic? Well, the the short version is, is so far, commercial tenants have not been particularly successful in asserting those kind of defenses, frustration, purpose, impossibility, and practicability. The, the first part of the analysis, though, is you have to look at your lease because a lot of the leases do address these issues, and sometimes they allocate that sort of that risk to the tenant occasionally, but not often they'll allocate it to the landlord, or what a lot of them say is that the risk will be on the landlord so long as the tenant pays rent. So what that means is if the tenant pays rent, the landlord can't evict for violating other parts of the lease. Like, for instance, if you have a, a shopping center or mall lease where the tenant's required to be open on certain days and certain hours, they don't do it. And a lot of these leases, as long as the tenant's paying the rent, then the landlord won't enforce, uh, can't enforce those other parts. Right. So, so the first thing to do is to look at what, your, what a lease says. Beyond that, if the lease doesn't really address it, at all or doesn't really address it in a, in a clear manner. So far, you know, I mean, there could be some judge out in Georgia or whatever that's come up with whatever ruling, but so far the the tenants, and also there's a lot of cases with insurance companies now where people who are insured had to close down and they have these business interruption coverages and all that, and they're making these claims, same thing, you know, acts of God and, you know, that kind of thing. And so far, the tenants or these kind of claimants have not done well. A a force majeure clause, which is trying to cover, say, uh, acts of war, acts of God, does it have to have specific reference, in your opinion, to pandemic-related events with specificity or, or not? You know, the judges have been... So far, what I've seen, and again, there could be judges elsewhere that, you know, they're looking at the entire context. So l- lots of times it'll, like uh, these force majeure clauses, and that's what I was talking about by looking at your lease was a force majeure clause. A lot of times it'll say, you know, acts of God and strikes and like 
hijackings and just like all you know a list of weird stuff and judges so far haven't have not been looking at that as as an exclusive list got it uh what if a business raising this defense some possibility of performance uh, got a large ppp loan during the process uh they didn't pay rent should that change things in your opinion i mean in my in my opinion that's something like that should because the idea is you're closed down because let's say there's a health order and you're closed down. And that makes the, the argument from the tenant would be that makes your performance impossible because you, you can't be open for business bringing those revenues that you use to pay, uh, to pay rent. And if you have another source of income like PPP money, I mean, I would argue strongly that, you know, the shutting down didn't make it impossible for them to pay rent, the tenant to pay rent because they got the money from a different source. Yeah, anecdotally, because I, I go to restaurants, wherever I can find one that's open will let me in there, mask, <laughs> no mask, 10 masks, I'm in there. Yeah. And you'll find invariably the ones that are uh, still operating, the smaller ones had PPP loans, it seems like. Yeah. All right, which of the following do you like the least? Think about this carefully. Okay. Ohio State, I like the least. Okay, that, I should have put sorry, that one. No, all right, no that's, that's, <laughs> that, that could be the answer. But think carefully on this one. It's paying taxes, Bill Belichick, or spoiled tuna fish? Bill Belichick. I knew <laughs> I was going to say that. I, I knew it. I just quiet just to sort of set you up. Of course. I just, I just want to make sure that uh, <laughs> the pandemic hasn't changed anything. <laughs> All right, on uh, January 28th, 2021, California enacted SB 91, which extended some of the provisions of the Tenant Relief Act, what they call AB 3088, which uh, expired on January 31st, 2021. SB 91 provides for the use of federal funds to compensate tenants and landlords for up to 80% of unpaid rent. So to qualify, a tenant must earn less than 80% of the area median income in 2020 or at the time of the application. And for a landlord to qualify, the landlord must forgive 20% of the rent that's due. You think that most landlords that qualify that you represent would agree to that? Yes. If they can get the, if they can get, and you're talk, we're talking about residential here, if they yes. can get the tenants to cooperate, most of them would be happy to do it. Because otherwise, how it is now is the tenant only has to pay 25%. They can avoid eviction by paying only 25%. And... The landlord's still entitled to the other 75%, and he can go sue in small claims court or something like that, but can't evict based off of that. So, you know, lots of landlords aren't going to you know, going to go to small claims court and then try to do that and collect on a judgment and all that. So my experience has been, I've been asked a bunch of questions about what do I do, what does a tenant have to do, how do I qualify? So I think most landlords are, are up for it. The one thing is... It only covers rent through from I think last April through this past March. Ah. So that's another issue. But you know, even for that, you know, you're just giving up your twenty percent of the rent for that period. So so giving up twenty percent for the possibility of chasing somebody for seventy five percent they may never exactly, collect. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, you know, there can be exceptions, but I, you know, most of uh, most of our now, by the way, they're talking about paying a hundred percent. California got $2.6 billion from the stimulus to be allocated for rent payments. And Newsom, since there's this big windfall now, the $75 billion tax windfall, yeah. uh, Newsom proposed adding California's own $2.6 billion to that. So that's a $5.2 billion pool. And that would pay, theoretically, would pay 100%. You think but, that could, could that change the recall? 
<laughs> Maybe you think he's throwing money for that reason. I don't know. He's also, by the way, he's also proposing another two billion of state money to pay for water and utility, uh, unpaid water and utility bills. Lots of billions being tossed around. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You think the dynamics have changed because of the pandemic enough that you can safely say landlords will do whatever it takes to keep uh, uh, a tenant that could pay in the game? Uh, I think for the most part, it has. You know, when I've had these conversations with landlord clients, you know, the, I, I always say to them, hey, okay, you know, let's say you get them out, then, you know, are you going to be in a better position? You know, then what are you going to do? You know, if it's a commercial, let's talk about commercial versus residential. Like, for instance, commercial, now you have a vacant space. You're going to have to spend a bunch of money on tenant improvements to get the place ready. Then you have to find the new tenant. You know, no rents coming in during all this time. You, uh, you have brokerage commissions. Some, you know, maybe you'll have to do some free rent at the beginning of a, a new tenancy, especially if it's retail. You know, is that worth it? Yeah, anecdotally, you know? I've I've, uh, I've noticed uh, that our landlords have been just a little more friendly here in our commercial space, <laughs> just yeah. a little. And, and you know, one one other interesting thing is I've had conversations with landlords that basically are willing to forgive all that. I'll give you one example. Client who's convinced interest rates are going to go up a lot. He wants to refi now before they really go up and, you know, pull whatever he can out of the property and that's what he wants to do. And this is commercial. And basically he wants to have tenants there paying rent. You know, he's willing to forgive lots of back rent and all that stuff. He wants them there so he can do the refi. Yeah, you got to so, You got to have a. Uh, you got to have uh, operating tenants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Uh, rent control. Let's talk rent control just for a second. So, rent control jurisdictions, excluding state rent control. Let's just talk. Uh, okay, well, San Francisco and Oakland. Yeah, Berkeley, Oakland. San Francisco, Oakland. They override the rights of foreclosing lenders to evict tenants that are living on the property after foreclosure. And uh, even in jurisdictions not subject to rent control, tenants that occupy a property after foreclosure generally have greater rights. If you're representing a lender that's foreclosed and there's a, a suspect lease, it looks like the lease was you know, dummied up or it's an inside lease between relatives or friends, how would you advise the foreclosing lender who wants to contest the tenant claim? I would advise him to get an unlawful detainer case filed as quickly as possible and then do discovery. And you want to get, if they're claiming that it's a tenancy with a lease and, and real rent and, and, and the whole thing, okay, then I want to serve discovery. I want to get copies of the lease, copies of bank statements showing the money was paid, get copies of checks. If the lease shows a security deposit, I want proof that security deposit was paid, you know, that kind of thing. Utility bills, you know, going back to certain times, you know, et cetera. And that smokes a lot of these people out. Good. Good point. Uh, a tenant can defend against paying rent, asserting that a property is inhabitable. You, you're familiar with that. Very uninhabitable. Uninhabitable, yes. You're very familiar with that. Tell me about the worst habitability claim you ever had. <laughs> the, you know, the, the thing with habitability is the worst things I've seen, and it's very unfortunate, are, are, are hoarders. And they create uninhabitable places for themselves and other people if it's multi Tenant, you know, multi-unit, you know, other tenants in the building. That's, you know, been the biggest problem. You know, but I've had other disasters like a, a sewage pipe burst, you, you know, things like that. Anything that stands out in particular? Some tenant that came in with a, like a radioactive six-inch cockroach or... 
I actually did have once where I actually did have the tenants put cockroaches in like a Ziploc bag oh, and brought it into my office. <laughs> that was interesting. That's way the case. <laughs> I don't remember. Funny. All right. Last question. Assume the night before the AFC Championship game between the Jets and the Patriots. You found a discarded casino ticket that paid you $10,000 if the Patriots won. Who would you root for? Be honest now. So, 10,000 Patriots win and I get nothing if the Jets win? Correct. Uh, There's something more important in life than money. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. John, thank you. Where is the love? Everything else that matters. Ridiculous laws are nothing new. However, in light of the increasing encroachment of government into every area of our lives, I thought it would be worth comparing some ridiculous laws passed over the years and then compare them with recent laws that are just as ridiculous. And a recent court case telling overbearing leaders in California, stop. Take, for example, I read on the Internet, so again, it may or may not be true, that in Lebanon, it's okay for men to sleep with animals, if they're female. In Samoa, it's illegal to forget your wife's birthday. I did verify that Florida has an ABC statute that makes it illegal to participate in any contest in a bar that would endanger a dwarf, including dwarf tossing. Idaho's criminal code makes it illegal to eat another human being, unless the action was taken under extreme life-threatening circumstances which I assume would be something like McDonald's is closed for an extended period of time or, or some other emergency. The Delaware Criminal Code makes it a person guilty of disorderly conduct if they conjugate with other people in a public place wearing masks, hoods, or other garments, rendering their faces unrecognizable. Hmm. Think about that for a minute. This brings me to one of the more recent regulations that was issued in May of this year, which pushed me over the edge. Apparently, Muriel Bowser, the mayor of the District of Columbia, enacted regulations prohibiting both standing and dancing at a wedding. Another overreaching and ill-conceived coronavirus mandate that you can add to thousands and thousands of more enacted over the last 18 months throughout the U.S. by everyone from courts, legislative bodies, doctors, guilds, and the International Brotherhood of Previously Divorced Sisters who support vegetarian rodeo riding. When is enough enough? Fortunately, it looks like it's up to the courts to stop the madness and restore the love while people gear up for elections to make their voices known. In a recent case called Harvest Rock Church versus Newsom, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, supported by the Supreme Court, enjoined the state of California from enforcing regulations that prohibited church attendance and singing at church services because they were applied in a discriminatory manner by the state of California meaning you could pack people into Target and Walmart or wherever they wanted to go, and they could sing and dance their way through the aisles, but you couldn't go to church and sing to your creator. As a result, Governor Newsom settled the lawsuit and agreed not to continue to discriminate, and he paid over $1.3 million in legal fees, which really means you and I pay it through our taxes. The moral of this story is that you can lose a lot of liberty in the face of real or perceived public health emergencies. The pandemic raised this concern to a new level. It gave powers uh, to both elected and unelected officials in a scale not seen probably since World War II. 
I sincerely believe that the economic and social results of the pandemic may be far worse than the medical results. When we face a pandemic, we're all in it together. But to keep the love, there has to be an equal effort to preserve and maintain our fundamental liberties while addressing health and safety concerns. The two are not mutually exclusive. If you think this will help restore the love, let me know. If not, let me know anyways. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos. <laughs>